Hello and welcome to the Animation Communication Podcast, your source for discussion about animation, film, fandom, and more. So please join your host, I Love Kim Possible a Lot, or KP, and Lauren Kizich, the Abbey Roadie, for today's discussion. If you like what you hear, please remember to support by giving a like, a follow, as well as subscribing to the main I Love Kim Possible a Lot channel on YouTube. Spread the word and keep being a part of a great community. This episode contains some mild adult language. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's animation communication. I'm your host, KP, or Rachel, depending on if you know me or not. Um, <laughs> with me, I have my friend Lauren, as usual. Say hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. You can't keep on using the same joke over and over again. I know. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna be. A, I'm just gonna be a minor bird repeating it over and over again. But no, I'll come up with something different. Uh, let's do a take two on that. So ask me again. Okay. And with me, I have my my co-host Lauren. Say hi, Lauren. Hola. Okay. That that. That's fine. <laughs> um, and also our guest this week is um. One of my favorite people, I think he's really talented, uh, character designer Stephen Silver, who also, for those who don't know, did Danny Phantom and the most important thing, Kim Possible. Say hi, Stephen. How are you doing? Hello. Good. I'm doing great. How are you surviving um, this pandemic that we're in so far? Are you keeping yourself busy? Surviving, yeah. It's just, it's like one of these things where I told you guys earlier, I feel like I've been in quarantine for the last 12, 13 years because I just work (laughs) from home. So it doesn't really feel um, too different to me. You know, I'm just at home every day anyway. The only thing is not going out to get as much uh, snacks or food, which I like doing, but um, that's okay. I'll survive. Yeah, there's always the joke that I've been seeing around on social media where, you know, even the introverts are just like, I wouldn't go outside anyway, but now I can't go outside and now that's bothering me, you know? So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously the um, the film and animation industry is kind of dormant right now, but we do have a couple of news segments before we get into the main discussion of uh, what is character design and like how to break down character design and how-to art. So Lauren, like, give me, give me the news. Well, as far as we know, uh, there seems to be word of a new pilot in the works by Dan Povenmire's Jeff Swampy Marsh. If you know those names, you, if you know those names already, then cool. If not, uh, they are the creators of Phineas and Ferb and, uh, and also Milo Murphy's Law. So uh, they're in the they're in the works of a new show together, and we don't know what studio's working on it quite yet. There, there, it could be Surfer Jack. It, we know, we don't know yet, but we do know that they are working on a pilot right now together. So keep your eyes peeled for any news coming up for that. We'll keep you posted on it. Um, and then also we have a little bit of word on production for the Tom and Jerry movie that's supposed to be coming out in December of 2020 it, that's if all goes well and we are all loud back into theaters by then um so we'll, we'll see but uh it's supposed to be according to director tim's story it's supposed to be uh stylized kind of like into the spider-verse where it's going to be 3d modeling with uh 2d effects applied so it's made to look 2d but it's actually a 3d model uh it's really good to see more and more movies trying to implement this stylistic approach to 3d animation so that it way it doesn't feel so much just like a 3d model there we've you know it's it, it this is 
new ground. And so I'm, I'm really personally excited to see it. And as long as this movie isn't a repeat of the 1992 movie, that would be great. <laughs> uh, the, the joke that I made is um, before we started recording is like just just what the world needs another Tom and Jerry movie. Um, <laughs> I only saw bits of like the only thing I know about the '92 version is that like Tony J that Tony J meme. Um, I I wish Tony J was around. He's he's he was cool. But anyway, so that and then I know the Willy Wonka Tom and Jerry movie <laughs> exists, which is basically. It's it isn't it like a shot for shot of Willy Wonka and the Ch- Chocolate it, Factory, it but it just is. has Tom and Jerry in it. Yeah, I guess. And then also Slugworth gets a musical number because he, sure, why not? <laughs> they had the they had the actor who played Slugworth and Harry Potter be in there. No. It, oh wait, Slugworth, no, Slugworth the character. Is the I'm character. An idiot. <laughs> The guy who's There's supposed too many to be slugworths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the slugworth that's supposed to be, you know, uh, trying to. Oh, the guy who bribes. He's trying to bribe the kids for the gobstopper. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Um. But it, who who owns Tom and Jerry now? It's it's still owned by Turner. So technically Warner Brothers. Uh, technically Warner Brothers has it. Okay, I really wish there was something new they could try to do, except just, like, it's the same thing, like, with the Scooby-Doo movies, where it's just, let's just keep on making Scooby-Doo movies and Scooby-Doo stuff, and I won't I won't talk about it too much, because Steven works on a Scooby-Doo property right now, so. <laughs> I, I do it like, becomes, I do... <laughs> It just becomes a safety thing. I think a lot of times when you see these remakes, again, the brand is already built, and I've found that a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people don't like to try new things, you know, because their mm-hmm. head becomes on the chopping block. If all of a sudden it doesn't do well, but at least they can say, oh, well, Scooby-Doo. Oh, mm-hmm. Tom mm-hmm. and Jerry. But it would have been cool if they did the Popeye one, if you guys ever saw oh, that. Oh, man, that would have been great. It kills me every time I see that animation test. Like, we could have had that. Yeah. Fun fact about Phineas and Ferb, actually. Phineas and Ferb actually killed Kim Possible. Yeah, what? yeah, I... Did you you know that, Lauren? No, I'm I'm just saying what. <laughs> oh, you're what what? Yeah, so Phineas and Ferb came after right after Kim Possible, and essentially, I mean, Stephen, jump in if I'm not if I'm getting my history inaccurately like transcribed, but um, I think there was a new um some new executives coming in, and maybe they were toying with the idea of a fifth season, but then the new execs wanted to kind of make their own or have their own thing that they've kind of rise. I guess risen up or just have their own brand of this is what we did in this era. So Phineas and Ferb came in, um, and it actually took the place of Kim Possible on the on the block too. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah that's that's it. That's kind of like what happened. It was just you know new blood, and says well Kim Possible wasn't our show. We weren't the creators necessarily behind it, so they wanted to have something that was their own that they were bringing to the table. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, I think the, the landscape is tr- is changing a lot now with um, Disney Plus and with streaming service and streaming services in general because the the Proud Family of all things got renewed for a new season. So I think my guess is that the live action movie is still relatively new and it didn't perform the best from you know looking into it. So I imagine if they're going to revive Kim Possible. Um, their their bet was with the live action movie, but because that was like kind of eh, as far as results, you know, 
that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, then they'll probably wait a couple more years before they try anything with that. But Kim Possible, I feel like, is a much safer reboot or recontinuation re idea than like something like The Proud Family, except like you got to get that nostalgia dollar somehow, yeah, I guess. Yeah, they're bringing back a lot of old shows now. That's kind of just, you know, all around Nickelodeon, Disney. Again, mm -hmm. it's like building upon the brand. It's just like, okay, well, this was successful then and it'll be, you know, a whole new generation. So it's like all the kids that grew up with Danny Phantom, Kim Possible and all that. Now they're older enough and now there's new kids that are 12 years old, you know, because it was what, 12, 13 years, more mm -hmm. than that, I think already when mm -hmm. it first came mm -hmm. out. So now those kids are now 11, 12, 13 to see something. And I think it's it's also interesting, even if it's on a new show, like um, the new DuckTales is recontextual recontextualizing like the the old Disney afternoon where they have mm -hmm. characters from Tailspin and characters from I think Chippendale Rescue Rangers was just in a recent episode of this recording. Yeah. So um I think it's the kids that grew up with that stuff and that now they're inside the studios and they're just like, well we have the rights for, you know, Chippendale and you know whatever, why not? And so it re like it reintroduces them for a new audience. So I think it's kind of an interesting um time and I'm, I'm just sitting on my butt just waiting like when when will treasure planet finally like get something <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'll, it'll come back it'll all come back yeah and i'm hoping you know like as we run out of things to remake um disney will start looking to the, the less traditional films like atlantis and treasure planet and something you know that they were modibly or they were okay successes at the box office but you know how many times can they re remake aladdin you know or Lion King really poorly, you know. So you know, it's an it's an interesting time in the industry, assuming that you know it continues after all this coronavirus stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the good thing about animation and other good animation news is that uh, nearly all the productions, most of them, are all still in production and they're going, and all the artists can work at home and they're making it work as opposed to live action mm -hmm. where they're mm -hmm. in trouble. But the television animation and feature is still going, you know, it doesn't need to stop. So that's a really great thing to have that ability. Um, you know, we just need our computers. We just need the FTP sites. We just need to connect that way and we can produce what we need to produce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, 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 I was going to add, it's also a great time for indie artists, uh, maybe making content for YouTube or other streaming platforms mm -hmm. where, you know, this is, this is a time where, you know, everyone is forced to be at home and, you know, they're streaming shows and they're watching a lot of YouTube. So like what I'm like, I'm trying to look at this positively and be like, well, you know, maybe people will, the content will get a little bit of a spike because, you know, what else are you going to do? Yeah, you can't absolutely. go anywhere. Yeah, for sure. No, it will, See, for sure. Yeah. Are you experiencing a spike a little bit on your YouTube stuff, Stephen? You know, I, I actually, I don't keep track of like any of that stuff. So it's hard for me to kind of, um, say like I don't look at analytics or anything I just I'm just doing what I'm doing and uh, you know if people come in and, and jump on in that's you know I mean it, it's great um, but it is one of those things where I realized in all honesty the importance of letting go of, of, of all that stuff and it's even when I look mm -hmm. through Instagram you know how Instagram you can start looking and you start just instantly going to how many people have looked at your post or, or right. a post, right? And it's just like, and when they were talking about that one time about getting rid of how many people have liked your post, I think it's a great idea because I think it makes people judge whether they're gonna continue looking at something 
or not, you know, so all of a sudden they see five likes on something. Well, now they're not going to give it any traction, but all of a sudden they see there's 500 likes. Well, now I'm going to spend a little bit more time looking only because it says 500 likes. So even when I flip to Instagram, I don't, I just look at the images. I try to never look at almost like the comments or, and this is when I'm looking at other people's stuff I'm talking about, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at uh, the comments. I'm not looking at the um, how many people have liked that person's post. And I'm making my own judgment if I flip through it, whether I'm going to like it or not, if it just grabs me, right? But I, I think that's something where it kind of helps you keep creating because I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of people stop creating because they don't feel enough people are seeing their content. And I, you know, I right. get people all the time, even on my YouTube channel go, I can't believe you don't have more followers, you know, and it's just like, yeah, well, you know, the people who do follow me and the people who do listen, that's great. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful for that, but I can't, I'm not in control of if people find what I'm doing interesting or not, you know? Right. And I feel like it's just kind of a, a real detergent on uh, new artists that, you know, they judge their success by who is following them and how many people and how many people are liking that thing. And, you know, I think it's just like at the end of the day, it's 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 fun to kind of um, have an audience and it's it's fun to have that interaction and it's fun to have people say, hey, I love your work. You know, you're the you're the best thing ever. But um, it's not the end all be all if you if you don't have an audience or you, you're growing slowly or whatever the case, as long as it's kind of um, as long as you're happy doing it, you mm -hmm. know, and as long as you feel like you're, you're you know, so that's what, what I really like about the podcast um, specifically, where it's not it's not too big of a deal, but it's here if, if people want to educate themselves, if people want to learn about animation. But I'm trying not to force it like on my main content too much because, you know, especially podcasts like without the audio visuals, some people will like it and some people won't like it. And, you know, it depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's just very important. Just again, you just create because that's what you want to create. Don't worry about the outcome. Just are you doing it for the love of it? Or, or even just know why you're even doing it. You know, why are you doing it? So if you're like, oh, I'm doing this because I, I want, you know, a million followers, you know, and that's <laughs> your intention. Well, then maybe you're going to try to create some sort of content and that's all you care about. And But why do you care about that? Well, because if I got a million followers, then people are going to pay me to advertise and do all this other stuff. So again, you might have your intention to that, but maybe your intention is, I just really enjoy getting together with my friend and doing this. I really enjoy just putting out this content and it feels good. Mm -hmm. I enjoy doing it because it's like a form of therapy for me. I, You know, where again, when people are just so focused on... They could have 500 friends, 1,000 friends on an Instagram or Facebook and only 10 people like it. That crushes their momentum. That crushes mm -hmm. their desire to really keep creating because now they care about the numbers of who's looking, even live. Like, I, you know, when you look at Facebook Live or something and people are, oh my God, I only got 16 people watching. Uh, and then you start, you know, then their mind starts to go, well, there's only 16 people watching. It's not enough people. I wish I had 50. I wish I had 100. If you allow that to get to you, it's things like that where I go, you know, live would be so much better if it didn't say how many people were watching. If mm -hmm. people want to comment, mm -hmm. that's great. But because I see too many people get caught up on that. They, they'll like say, they'll say something while they're on there. They'll go, well, it looks like there's only 16 people. I, I got to wait till there's 20 people, you know, and they're doing this. So you're, you're sort of like destroying your own creativity 
because you care too much about what other people think or say or if they're there and um, yeah, again, yeah. that's what humans want. You know, we want to be mm-hmm. seen. We want to be heard. We want to know that people are listening to this. Do they do they hear me? Do they see my artwork? Do they understand me? And it's just a common human trait that we we have to learn as artists to just really try to get a hold of and take control of and not let that be the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other point is it's it's just healthy to not like define yourself by you know who is viewing and how much and like what is how much you know because like you always want more and like you know being in the the circle of like you know the youtubers around 100k there's always there's always the youtubers that are just like well what about this or what about 500k or whatever and like you know it's just like like there's no defined stuff because you you always want to be the next person who's getting more and more. You see like X person down the street and you're just like, oh, why aren't I him? And I'm just like, but you have X. And I'm just like, but I want Y. And I'm like, when's where's the line, you know? And well, but, then it becomes just an unhealthy competition. And I think competition is healthy in the sense that it gives you a desire. It gives you something to attain to be like, oh my God, that guy is so good. Their artwork is so amazing that I, man, and I, I got to get that. I want to be as good as that. So there's a health in that, but then there's not so healthy in the form of letting competition be your driving force that you can't even be happy mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. that are doing better than you and yeah. that they do have more followers and that they are doing that. It's all of a sudden becomes a, you know, uh, a frustration. And I, I don't know that that's healthy at all. And that's why I always believe in just, just be your best, do your best. And there is a, a guy that I quote all the time. I can't remember his name. He was an author, but he said, be yourself because everyone else is already taken, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what it is. It's like, stop trying to be the other person. It's just like, I just, if you can enjoy what it is you're diving into, that's the, that's the success. And unfortunately people, they know it inside their mind. That's what success is. But we got this perceived version of what we think success is all success is the person who has the job at the studio all the success is the person who's got a hundred thousand followers all the success is the person who's got the the car and the house and all these things but that's not really because we see all those people we see the people who have the jobs who are miserable Mm -hmm. we see the people Mm -hmm. who have the house and the cars who are miserable we Mm -hmm. see the people with the wife and the kids who are miserable Mm -hmm. we see we Mm -hmm. see all these things inside you can't judge it by that but we all know inherently what is success but success is happiness am Mm -hmm. i happy Mm -hmm. with what i'm doing Mm -hmm. am i happy with the job the project i'm working on right now am i happy with the relationship i'm in right now am i happy with my friends and we know we all know that's the truth but we have this other facebook instagram image or life that people think that oh that's when people think i'm successful it's not real yeah i think i gotta prove to my mom that 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 i'm that i'm hot stuff yo (laughs) That's why it's like it's like a blessing and a curse to have social media be so involved in our lives now. It's like it can if you use it right, it's if you use it right, it's a great tool and a great asset. But if you get too too engrossed in it and you lose yourself in it, it's like then it's just a hor- horrible horrible thing. But it's like again, it's like as long as you know how to use it right and use it responsibly, 
and then it's and it's amazing you know and then you can and it'll if anything and it may even help you you know achieve that try to strive for that happiness that you want which is you know as long as you're able to do what you want to do and be happy doing it you know yeah so yeah just it is it's so much just enjoying the process of it don't have expectations let it kind of be and you know just know hey i'm doing my best mm-hmm. it's almost like the boy scout motto right i'm I'd be do your best it's like i'm doing my best i'm i'm doing my podcast i'm doing this i'm working on a drawing a day i'm whatever it may be for you that i do feel like you know you're giving it your best or do you feel like i'm wasting so much time on social media that i'm looking into everyone else's life and I'm looking at all the other kids, so to speak, playing on the playground and I'm sitting on the sidelines mm. and not mm. necessarily joining in. Am I, am I so consumed with everyone else's life and action instead of putting that time and saying, I'm going to work on my own YouTube channel. I'm going to work on my own podcast. I'm going to work on my own portfolio. I'm going to work on my own, whatever, you know, I mean, you name it. I don't care what it is. Maybe you want to build boats or something, but, you know, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like you said, with what your podcast deals with, it's about music. It's about dance. It's about everything. It's like voice acting. What, what do you want to do? What, what is that passion? Stop worrying about what the end result's going to be and just work on what you feel feels good. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I was just going to say, I'll, I'll just add a note for, for people that are new to the podcast. We also talk about this um, specifically in the fan fiction um, episode too. So if you care and want to go back and are like, who are these people and why are they talking to me? Um, then I recommend that episode. It's a, it's a good one. So uh, anyway, um, that's not important. So we got a little <laughs> bit off tangent, but uh, let's let's pull it back. So um, it's good Stephen is a... <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a podcast. That's what you do, right? Exactly. So anyway, um, so Stephen is a very uh, prolific. Um, I think he's the go-to person for just general character design. So um, Stephen, I'm going to ask you to break down what character design is for people that aren't familiar, people maybe that are new to being an artist, or people that are not necessarily visual artists, and like what um, the general process requires. And then we'll get a little bit into your history. And then Lauren, if I'm missing anything, please feel free to yell at me. Yeah, because I will probably forget. <laughs> I, I, I almost think what I like to just tell people, it's just, we, we all know who we're talking about Scooby-Doo. We all know Scooby-Doo. So the, the character designer's job is once there's a script, but there's not always a script. Sometimes it's just a premise, just a little inkling of an idea, a little concept. And it's the character designer's job to design what that character looks like in this universe in this world so scooby-doo what is scooby-doo what type of dog is scooby-doo what sort of style is scooby-doo how are we gonna and this is the role of the character designer is to really just out of your imagination um create what these characters look like you're kind of like a casting director in the movie industry where some will say hey we need a we need, we're doing the Terminator. The Terminator is like Arnold Schwarzenegger before they knew it was him and is this big guy and that. So they, they, got, they know what they're looking for. And it's up to the character designer, once he gets a script, to visually draw out what that character is actually going to look like. So you're in charge, especially in the beginning, of finding the look and the style because it doesn't exist yet. Sometimes you'll come on as a character designer where a show is already designed. Now it's your job just to match the style. And on a daily routine of a character designer's job is number one, to design the main cast. So say it's the main cast of Scooby-Doo. 
and you design all those guys and now your job is working off storyboards but also designing the villains, the ghosts, the incidental characters, mm-hmm. the animals, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, that's going to be your job. Mm-hmm. And I think character design in general is one of those jobs that it sounds easy on paper, um, but when you actually like are trying to conceptualize like either for, especially for, you know, I guess it depends on the person, but for me, I think especially trying to find a new style for a show that isn't defined yet mm-hmm. versus like something like going to Scooby-Doo where you already have like a preconception about like how male and female characters look, you know, what kind of, um, you know, what the character um, personality says about the build of the character, you know, are they like Daphne? Are they more nerdy like Velma? You know, how is that influencing um, you, their personality influencing how they look compared to, um, you know, a totally new property where you basically have to pitch ideas until, like, the, the guy up front basically says, well, I finally like that, and, you know, how many variations you have to go through to in order to make sure someone is essentially happy who doesn't sometimes doesn't know what they want um oh that's quite often i think that's the most <laughs> that's quite re- really the most frustrating frustrating part about it is the worst people to work with are people who don't know what it is that they want who, who aren't just you know they're indecisive and the best people to work with are the decision makers, the people who can do something. They go, yeah, that's it. I'm feeling that. Now mm-hmm. go to that mm-hmm. next level. Uh, but it is frustrating when you're, because sometimes you'll work and you design things and you think, man, this is, this is g- cool. Like you're happy with it. And then you find that a lot of times people just want to go back to the generic or they want to go back to what they've already seen before because they knew that worked. And it gets harder and harder sometimes to, to push things. And that's why the only way, the only way to do that is really for yourself on your own. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is an advantage to having people who are, who are good and decisive because then they can sort of lead you in the right direction and make something better mm-hmm. where you, you know, mm-hmm. you could do your first designs and be like, I don't know if it's good enough, but I think really just making sure you're working on your own stuff is the best way. But I find, yeah, more and more, the, the most frustrating for me always is working on a design or trying to come up with a look and people not reacting to it the way that you'd hope that they would because they're they get nervous. Yeah, mm-hmm. direction is so important because it's like it's uh, the same role can apply to like even if you're like an artist and you're taking a commission, you can't have a client that goes, "Oh, draw whatever you feel like." Because because uh, odds are they have something in their head that they want to see. Like I want to see these characters together. Okay, well what do you want them doing? I don't know, whatever it feels right. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, you don't want to swing with that. You have to be more specific. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot more complaints coming back than you want. And especially not when that's something, not when you, what you asked for in the first place. Like, I didn't ask for this drama. You know, it's like, you just have to tell me what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and what I do want to say too for anyone out there is just, I always hear different artists say, oh, I want to be a, I want to be a children's book illustrator and, mm-hmm. and that they're, they're waiting for that job to come. So they're trying to, you know, just get that job and that's all they're focused on, not realizing that the reality is if you just keep waiting to get that book illustrator, children's book job, you're going to end up working for a client 
who's going to give their notes. You're not going to get to draw the characters that you want to do. You're not going to be able to do it the way that you want to do. You're going to have to follow their lead. You're going to come up with some cool stuff and they're going to say no. The most important thing you can ever do is create your own children's book. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Mm-hmm. So do that first. Just build it and they will come, so to speak. It's like mm-hmm. create your, mm-hmm. don't wait to become the children's. Oh, someday I want to be a children's book illustrator. What are you waiting for? Just start now. Just work on your own book. Create it the way you're going to do it. Make your own deadlines. Set your own goals. Create your own style. Do all that stuff because otherwise you're going to be very disappointed when you actually get the job. And that's the same thing with character design. If you're not working on your own designs and trying to figure that out and flush it out and being versatile doing all that, once you do get that job for the client and they say, well, now, okay, you got hired on SpongeBob. Well, now you just got to draw the SpongeBob style all day long. It's just like, oh man, but I kind of want to know. No, don't question me. That's what your job is. That's what you do. And don't complain. This is what you wanted. Oh, but I wish I, no, I don't want to hear it. That's your job. <laughs> yep. Um, and I see so many, um, I talk to a lot of, a lot of, like I say kids, but you know, kids as in like 18 year old, me and Lauren are both in our mid twenties. So like, you know, kids is a, is a flexible term, but I see a lot of, a lot of people, um, who are, who are fa- fan artists specifically who are, um, who are afraid to kind of get out of their comfort zone a little bit and like afraid to try a new style or they're afraid to, you know, like I, I always try to like advocate, you know, experimenting a little bit and trying to practice different styles from different shows just because, you know, um, there are, there is a lot of flexibility when you're doing something where it's your own thing and you, you don't really, you can just kind of design the characters as you see fit, but compared to like, if, you are working for a show on SpongeBob and you're a storyboard artist or um, maybe not a storyboard artist, but if you have to be on model for a specific um, assignment, then you're not going to like, you're going to be like a fish out of water and being like, I want to draw this way, but now I can't. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, you probably wouldn't be in that position if you could only draw one style anyway, but you know, go to life drawing classes is is the end of my spiel like practice practice drawing from real life too you can still draw your fan art like that's cool well that's the big um, thing that i would say too just be versatile if you want to be a character designer just make sure you're versatile which means just draw multiple styles be able to adapt and show that range in your portfolio mm -hmm. and because when you're working with a client anyway and if a client does come to you and says hey We love you. We're working on this new property. This is the concept. We'd love to see your take. They just don't want to see one idea. They want to see multiple variations. Mm -hmm. And so the more you can provide that, unless they're coming to you specifically and saying, hey, we we love your style for this specific thing and we want you just to do that. And there's some artists that just do that. You know, you get a guy like Carter Goodrich who's just got, does Carter Goodrich. So every Mm -hmm. time someone's Mm -hmm. hiring him, they know they're hiring Carter Goodrich and he's not going to give you a whole different style you're getting. And that's what, you know, you're buying into, um, at other time, then there's the other character designer, which is the, Hey, we see that you draw multiple different styles and variations. We just want to see what you come up with, um, on your take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I had a train of thought, but I lost it. Um, but yeah, I think, oh, I remember. So I think in general, there's a, there's a big divide too compared to like working in the industry versus like being commission artist on like the art or 
Lauren, are there any other sites people use for commissions in general? Um, like, is it just DeviantArt? Uh, I mean, there's there's so many now. I mean, and it's all not even so much of a site. Sometimes it's literally just, uh, you know, like ArtStation. I know some people post on jobs on ArtStation. So I guess some people try to sell commissions through there as well. Um, even Etsy. Even people have sold their commissions through Etsy. Yeah, so, that's, that's, I mean, that's true. There's a marketplace everywhere now, all over. Everything is a marketplace. <laughs> But yeah, you have to, I think it's about expanding your brain because when you're getting contacted for commissions via ArtStation or DeviantArt or whatever, usually your clients are coming to you because they already like your style and they want to see their character in your style or something specifically in your style, which is great. And, um, but there's also the, the, you know, the, the catch 22 where if you're in a different environment and you have to kind of structure your, your style a little bit, then you, you know, you might be a little bit um again fish out of water if you have to do that so there's always the commission artists that you know are doing great because people love their style it's very aesthetically pleasing but you know that's that might be all they're going to be because they're never they're just kind of used to being in that comfort zone of you know people like people like what I do already so there's no there's no point to try something new and I'm like there's there's always a point to try something new you know um, because I think it will open your, it will open yourself more to op- more to more opportunities as well as you're not going to lose your original style if you try a different style. You know, you can always go back. You know, or if it, depending on what the um the assignment or the commission is, um, you know, obviously. Yeah, that's what um, my my industry my my career has really been based on always just trying to hey come up with something different. Like people will say, hey, we love what you did on Kim Possible, but we don't want that. We want something completely different so that, you know, they're not looking for that. But having that ability, again, if you want to be especially a television uh, character designer, character designer for television or games or apps or things like that is more versatile, the better off you'll be as far as getting different sort of clients and different sort of jobs instead of just having just the one style of maybe getting commissions or just oh, well, we're not really looking for that style for this TV show, so we're not even going to call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, obviously, we don't, we don't know too much about that, but that's, that's why you're here, Stephen. Um, so um, I think uh, we'll kind of bleed into Stephen's work a little bit. So um, I've heard the story before, but for the people who haven't, um, Stephen, can you describe how you broke in, and then we can tell the story about how you came up with the, or you helped contribute to the the design and look of Kim Possible and how that happened but so how did you originally break in yeah I mean initially my whole career was uh, I was a caricature artist and I was working in theme parks uh, different going to different states doing caricatures and then I started my own business doing caricatures where I would do a lot of weddings bar mitzvahs Mm. corporations Mm. do all things like that and then I would set up at the shopping mall and do characters during the Christmas season. And then one thing led to another, again, meeting people, connections, so to speak. I met an artist who worked at Warner Brothers on a show called Freakazoid. Mm, and he was mm. a storyboard artist. And he came to do a talk at a networking group that I was a part of. And I showed him my work and he just said, hey, keep in touch. And it wasn't until about a year later where I got back in touch with him and said, hey, can I show you my work? And he invited me up to Warner Brothers in back in 1997. And he looked through my portfolio and he said, you know, I think they just 
fired their character one of their character designers and they're looking for someone new let me take this up there <clears throat> so we took my portfolio upstairs the director wasn't there we dropped it off i met the line producer and then the director looked at my portfolio and then i think i got a call back within the next couple days of hey would you want to come take a test and that's mm. how the studios mm. will usually operate they're going to test you to see if you can uh fit in the show style again this is where the versatility comes into play mm -hmm. and that show was mm -hmm. called hysteria at warner brothers it was like a educational history cartoon fun little show and they liked they gave me a test and they liked what i did and that's how i got my foot in the door so i never had any schooling or anything i never went to school uh, but that's how i broke into the industry and that was back in 1997 and mm. then I've been mm. in the animation industry uh, ever since. Yeah, um, I don't know if anyone has ever been to the Warner Brothers lot, but it's very big and it's very nice. And um, they have a, I don't know if it's still there, but they have a Harry Potter like props setup thingy above for all the all the touristy people. So I was only called on Warner Brothers like a couple of times for Central, but you know, it's 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 fun. You know, Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> so um why don't you um why don't you talk about um I believe um Bob Bob Schooley just released on Twitter or he found a bunch of like really, really like old school like impossible drawings for when they were first developing the show or I think she was originally uh, blonde and it had a lot of uh, Bruce Tim kind of inspired um, aesthetic. So why don't you talk about, um, you know, what part of the process you came into and like how you kind of finalized the KP look um, yes, yeah, so, I guess Yeah, no, uh, yeah, on that show so I was working at Disney on another show called um, what was it called? The Replace The Replacements Ah, love um, that one. But yeah, love it was a Disney show so I was working on that show and during that show my director that I worked with on a previous show I was on called Clerks the animated series mm -hmm. which was based on Kevin Smith's Clerks uh, he got in contact with me, said, hey, listen, we're, we got, there's a new show. These guys, Mark and Bob, have created. Do you want to take a stab at drawing this Kim Possible? And I'm just like, uh, hell yeah, just kind of get me off of um, this replacement show. I kind of <laughs> did it. I was kind of like. Was this, uh, was this Chris Bailey? Oh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the. Uh, was it, it wasn't the. Um, was it the. No, it was Weekenders. Sorry, sorry. Oh, it was yeah. the, I was on the Weekenders, totally not the replacements. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was on the Weekenders at the point when Chris Bailey, yeah, who I worked with on Clerks, the animated series, where I did the designs for that. He, he was my director, and he got in contact with me again and said, hey, dude, what do, you, do you want to take a stab? I'm like, yeah, get me off of this Weekenders show. And, um, <laughs> so I just started doing, I read the script. They gave me a script and outline. I started drawing, and at first they were going for thinking that that's what they were wanting was more of this kind of Bruce Tim action adventure uh, type of look. And I was just bringing in a lot more of my caricature sort of uh, drawing style and also my kind of Al Hirschfeld mm -hmm. sort of style mm -hmm. or, or take that, you know, Al Hirschfeld's an artist, a caricature artist who's passed away now, but um, was one of my huge influences uh, in life growing up, just what, looking at his work. And then from there, just started doing my take 
and um, everyone was real happy with the way I was going. So they said, hey, do you want to come on to this full time? And then it was my job from the get go just to start designing all these characters from scratch, just hundreds of drawings. Okay, uh, Ron's got a naked mole rat, Rufus. And okay, so I'm sitting there designing what, what the hell's a naked mole rat? <laughs> You know, coming up with all these ideas and then all the working on um, all the villains. And, you know, it's just a, and it was just such a great collaboration, you know, with Chris Bailey. And that's one of the guys like Chris Bailey is one of those artists. He was a feature animator and he's a, he's one of those guys who um, is can be very is he's very decisive you know i mean his is indecisive but is very decisive like he's he's just kind of knows what he wants to see and is he has a real high bar of almost perfection where mm-hmm. he really because of his background and his training he just kind of wants the best he just kind of wants people who know how to draw he wants people who know how to act he wants people that can bring something to the table and um, so he can be very hard on people and, and people have had that where he's too hard is he, he expects too much is just too, you know, he's never satisfied. And there's a quality about that, that makes whatever Chris Bailey gets involved in really great, mm-hmm. you know, and that's mm-hmm. where just working with Chris on this show was, you know, extremely hard, but very rewarding at the same time because he kept pushing me. And he kept pushing me and he kept pushing me. And, you know, there was a time where I remember the executives were coming into my cubicle and they were trying to tell me what to do. You should make her look more or do this. And Chris Bailey and Mark and Bob found out about that. And they were so pissed that the executives (laughs) were trying to come in and just give their voice. And you don't let, you know, it's just like, don't, you know, don't, you know, just hear what we have to say sort of thing. You know, we're happy with what you're doing and everything. And don't let these guys bully you, you know, so to speak. And uh, they were just so supportive and working with Mark and Bob was so great. And they were always so happy. I, I love getting scripts on that show. I, I always get to get the script and uh, looking at the new villains that were mm-hmm. coming about mm-hmm. and going, oh man, what's this guy going to look like? And and that was just a, a lot of fun. So it was really great. And then there was the great, talented uh, Eugene Salandra, mm-hmm. who was a, a storyboard artist. And so he worked on the pilot of the storyboard and created such a great, um, did a great job on the script. On, on the pilot episode. Um, but yeah, it was just such a blast of a show. It's one of my favorite shows to ever have worked on in my life. Um, yeah, obviously I think, um, and it's like, I've, like I've said, it's, um, I think why I love Disney plus, like just as a concept so much is it's reintroducing those properties, like even Kim possible and gargoyles and, you know, some of like the old school Disney afternoon stuff to like a, very accessible because a lot of those times like like I know that like the first two seasons of Kim Possible got released as a box office but not till like at least like five or six years until after it was done and then the they never finished the 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 last two seasons and then a lot of times like the only way to find that stuff is if you're like touring really hardcore so to have it um on a platform that's just really accessible um I think is a really great um move just to make sure that you know people are um you know the more accessible it is the more people are going to watch it and the more people that watch it the more people are going to relate to it because um 
yeah, I don't know. Go go get Disney Plus and go watch some Kim Possible on oh, Disney yeah, Plus. Yeah, it's great. But, it's know. so cool that, again, it's re- reintroducing it to a whole new generation, which is great. Yeah, and Dis- yeah. Disney looks at the numbers on those, too. They see what people are watching, how many are watching it. So, I mean, and, and they take, I remember early on, they I think they might still do it, is they take suggestions for stuff they want to see. But what do, what do people want to see that isn't on the platform yet that they want to see cycle in at some point? And so people have been pitching in, like, I want to see this show. I want to see this show. I want to see this movie. I want to, you know, so they, it, they, they're listening. They want to know how to make the platform better and what, what even shapes content going forward if they're making new stuff. So, and what gets rebooted, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder how Kim Possible's actually doing. You know, I wonder if it's like they're surprised by it or not surprised by it. You know, because really, I mean, ever since after that show, there's been, you know, just a lot of, you know, different, the, the style is very, become became very common uh, with different mm-hmm. shows and also just the um, the idea of a female sort of superhero type character became prevalent in many different shows after that. So I'm wondering if it's kind of so new anymore where they're like, eh, well, we kind of got all that stuff already. Otherwise they go, hey, this might be the perfect time to reintroduce her. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. I think even with the, ahead, I was going to say with the live action movie, if anything, it probably pushed more people to go back to the cartoon. Like, let's see where it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I like they, they did try really hard with the live action movie, but I think just the medium wasn't quite right for it. Yeah. But um, and I don't know that th- we can go into a whole podcast episode about like breaking down what was long- wrong with the, the live action movie. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it exists now. And I, I guess, you know, if you if you just like read the script in your head and re- imagine all the original voice actors doing it, it's it's a little less bad. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I think I don't have any questions right now. Lauren, do you have any questions so far? Well, I I do because it's funny because this whole time, uh, while talking, I have been staring at my Stranger Things print from you, Stephen. Oh, right on. As as I I recently got some stuff, some artwork hung up on my uh on my wall, and one of them is your Stranger Things print, and so it's just like because that's one of the most prominent staples in your designs is your shape language and how you utilize that in, in shaping the personalities of each character. Uh, I guess I want to say like for our audience members who don't know where to start in character design or art in general, uh, can you tell us the importance of shape language and visual development in character design? Yeah. I mean, I guess you kind of got to think about it like any language just for a language, if it's Japanese, if it's Spanish, whatever it may be, there's a, there's a language and it becomes distinctive. And I think when you're creating a show style, that's just something that one needs to think of is like, what are the language of shapes that more importantly, so that you can keep it consistent. That way it doesn't feel like you're talking Spanish, but all of a sudden you go into Japanese, but then you go into English and then you go into German. You know, can you imagine mm-hmm. how uh, just crazy that would be? And it's just, and that's the same thing with design is when you're designing, you're creating a language of shapes that you say that these shapes are going to be this language of the show that we're doing. So it may be... Maybe there's a certain way that you draw everyone's ears and there's a certain shape mm-hmm, that goes mm-hmm. in there. Or maybe 
everyone's clothes, they're very wrinkly and you draw that and then you got to make sure you keep that consistent or maybe there's no wrinkles in anyone's clothes and you keep that consistent or there's a certain way that you're treat fingers or fingernails, right? So you're creating a language and that's what I've always done. That's what I'm always working on is just trying to find my shapes um, make them distinctive, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, make them clear. You want it to be clear. You don't want it to be confusing. You don't want a confusing language. You want a simple language. You want it to be clean. You want it to be clear. And you just know that there's animators in another country that need to learn your language um, and mm-hmm, they need to do mm-hmm. it pretty quickly. And so you're going to give them a model sheet and you're going to show them how to break down the shapes and Uh, really work on that so the more defined you are in your language the easier it is for other people to draw it a hundred times a thousand times because they've learned the language and so I try to always simplify my language is simplicity I feel there's a lot of lines in design that you don't need it's like even when I was like working on designing some characters today and I start drawing in lines and I go oh that kind of looks cool but you know what? It makes it too complicated. We don't need those lines. I don't need that in the mm-hmm, shape mm-hmm. language. So I eliminate them and I go, Does, did it help the design? Did it make it better? Did it make it worse? Is it even necessary? And you realize, eh, no, I, I didn't even need that. And it still says the exact same thing. And that's what I'm always trying to find is, especially in caricature, like when I do the Stranger Things or The Office or Parks and Rec, and I'm looking at caricature and doing design of people, I'm going, What's the essence? What makes that person them? Is it their eyes? Is it their smile? Is it their face shape? Is it what's so distinctive about that person that makes it uniquely them for other people mm-hmm, to identify mm-hmm. and, and understand the language? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just add too, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Stephen did this set or Stephen said this at one of the panels um, I went to, I think at um, TuneCon a couple or maybe like six months ago. I don't remember when Toon Con was. was November, anyway, right? Um, <laughs> November. Okay. I was, yeah, that was about six months yeah, ago. Okay. Long. So anyway, um, that Steven watches like when he's, when he's designing caricatures for live action shows or just like, you know, a caricature based on a specific person. I imagine this comes from, you know, doing caricatures where you're just watching people for long periods of time, but he'll focus on like um, body language things and trying to incorporate sometimes that into the design a little bit like how is that character speaking how is that character walking and then you know a lot of this ties into just general animation principles about defining a character's personality just by how they look and how they carry themselves and you know maybe their walk is a little different than you know someone who's like more confident and you know all that all that stuff kind of meshes together as far as like visual language um and animation animation. yeah exactly exactly yeah but um to I was I remember my my point, but um, it's not too much on about Stephen. But I was just going to say, um, as far as Kim Possible, I think um, Lauren, uh, not not you, Lauren, uh, Lauren Faust talks about a lot of the time um, how she's very pro women in animation, both in the industry as well as you know behind you know in front of the camera. As far as a lot of female characters, female casts, and um, I. You know, I think it's an interesting um, disposition because Lauren and I, um, co-host Lauren, we grew up in an era with with characters like Kim Possible, um, you know, in the forefront where I don't think we felt that divide. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, Lauren, um, and jump in, but I don't think we felt that divide as far as the lack of 
you know, female heroines, like, both in our, in our pop culture, but even, like, in our animation culture, because we had, you know, characters like Kim Possible and a lot of female superheroes going on, um, going in, like, the DC animated universe, for instance, mm-hmm. and all, all that fun stuff. So, do you agree with that, I guess? Me? Oh, yeah. I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Yeah, Well, you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I was going to say, I think especially in the era we grew up in, it was where it seemed like entertainment was kind of starting to shift. And so as new creators and new designers and everybody was coming in, they had all their new ideas and the the stories they wanted to tell, the stories that shaped them, the, the things that shaped who they are, and they wanted to share that. And so when you have coming to the forefront more creators who want to bring more women to the front and who want to have more female oriented stories and 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 superheroes heroines and and you know just like and positive you know female role model type characters uh i think we can't i think it was like we pretty much grew up in a great era because uh we were at the that was at a time where i think for a lot of people it may have been new and how they those stories were told and how they were conveyed um uh, but it was just like something where it kind of just was it came natural to us you know we we kind of saw it and we're like yeah yeah we can like yeah, we, girl power. We, we can be we can be super spies <laughs> we could be you know we could we could go and kick butt and t- you know and it's like we could stop the world from being taken over by dragon <laughs> And so it's like uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a thing. It's like Lauren, do you do you mean we could do anything? Do do boo. Okay. <laughs> there there's my antidote. We we could we could end now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, it was also just like uh, even to loop it into shows like Danny Phantom, as where even if the girls weren't at the forefront, they were a huge part of like a major part of the cast and having positive characters like that and well developed and even deep characters. Uh, like Sam, to have her involved in the show and to have her be part of the storylines, it was like. And I, as I'm saying this, I'm actually I'm like low key wearing my Danny Phantom shirt. So, <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, it's just like uh, yeah. I think we with those kinds of stories. I think we we pretty much we we pretty much had had like one of the best eras for television, especially when it was like new content, new designs. It was a whole new frontier especially after coming off of the 90s, which was the Wild West, too. It was the Wild West of animation where anything was possible because suddenly it was just like, you know, you had Duran and Stimpy, you had Rugrats, you had everybody coming out with Johnny Bravo. You had all of these new shows coming out and trying, and trying to see how far they could go they can and go. what they could And there was with. a limited, you know, place to see them, right? So just remember when you guys were even watching probably Kim Possible or Danny Phantom, you weren't watching it online. You were watching it mm-hmm. on TV. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. th- there's a whole different generation and different stuff happening there too, where there's so much content now and so much of it is blending and merging. You don't even know where to start, what you're looking at. And, you know, and it's all become, I, I think, just a mishmash where it's it doesn't feel as special sometimes anymore. It used to be in an event to watch a premiere and a finale. That's what I remember. And I, I remember even watching a, like one Saturday mornings I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons. I remember watching, you know, coming home from school and watching the Kids WB block. I remember, <laughs> I remember the, I remember Fox Kids. I remember all of that, like because it was something where you're like, okay, gotta be up at this time to catch this, otherwise you miss it. 
now it's now it's always there. Always there. <laughs> always there. Yeah. <laughs> Following you. Everywhere you go. Um, yeah, I, I just like if we're going to reminisce for a little bit, I just remember, um, I guess I remember that um, when the the series finale of Kim Possible was coming out, they um, they like the Disney Channel did a whole like marathon where it's like for three or four days. It was just like Kim Possible from like 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. And they wouldn't give away their time, their their prime time slots, obviously. But you know, I thought it was just um, fun and going out with a bang. And then the other thing I remember is the, the the finale got leaked online like a week early. But I I waited to watch it on TV. I don't know how it got leaked, but it did. It so did. it's on YouTube. Wow, I didn't know that. I, I didn't, yeah. yeah. Was wow, wasn't funny. it around the same time? Because two thousand seven, I remember distinctly because growing up, I'm like. If I caught any Disney Channel shows, it was like when I'd go to a friend's house because I didn't grow up with cable. It was like around 2007 I got cable and I got it just in the nick of time to watch like the series finale. I think it was like a triple hitter the summer 2007. It was like Danny Phantom had its end. Kim Possible had its end. And then I think American Dragon Jake Long had its end, too. All three were like, I think, within the within the, like the same few days like they all had finales i'm just like gosh i'm just getting sucker punched three days in a row <laughs> that's fine wow so you're making me so that was back in then 2006 and stuff when Kim yeah, yeah it, it aired um in 2007 the finale um oh, aired, the finale so not to make you feel old but dang, yeah. <laughs> dang, that's crazy so what is that that's uh 10 11 12 13 years ago yeah yeah <sighs> Hard to believe. <sighs> That's what I'm saying. There's like 13 year olds now who are get to watch it on. They get to watch it on Disney Plus. You know. Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, and I'm just like old man KP on YouTube saying like, you know, I remember watching Kim Possible when it first came out, and now you guys go watch it on. Kim uh, it's so it's interesting that in some ways I'm reintroducing people who. Um, who don't know about Kim Possible um, via the content, which makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So our, our special um, moment, our special moment. <laughs> now I do have, um, I do have, I do have to ask what what were some of what were some of your favorite characters designed for Kim Possible? Yeah, I mean, definitely like Draken. I mean, it really was all the villains. I love doing the villains. Whenever I got a new script, that was the most exciting thing to see who the new villain was going to be from mm -hmm. Monkey Fist mm -hmm. to, um, I, I don't even remember all the names, you know, but um, just. If that, you that, describe that, them, I can name them for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, who was the Scottish guy? Uh, Duff Killigan. Oh, that was Duff Killigan. Duff Killigan. Um, there was one guy who had like a little chihuahua pet and he had a patch. That was, that was, um, that was, that was Gemini. Gemini. See, I wouldn't even have known that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you know, cause you don't know the name. I remember when I was doing senior, 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 um, on that, I was having so much trouble designing him because I just couldn't get the character. And then they came to me. It was like, I remember it was like a week and a half later, two weeks. And they're just like, listen, is being voiced by Ricardo Montalban. I'm just like, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, I got it. And then once I got that, I kind of nailed it uh, from there because I just made it look like Ricardo Montalban, you know, mm -hmm. just gave mm -hmm. a essence. But um, yeah, sometimes I would get the script, sometimes I would get a voice uh, sound um, track so that they, they would do, they record the voices before I got the design to do the design. Otherwise, sometimes... 
I would do the design first and they would try to find the voice to match the design. But yeah. it was yeah. always fun. It was, it was that the villains, yeah, were always the fun one. Yeah, I imagine it just depends on um, who they're casting or whether like the act, the actor or actress came before, you know, because or, or or they they just had a design and they cast someone uh, after the fact. Like I remember they cast um, Ashley Tisdale as uh, Chameleon. You get it? Chameleon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I imagine um, something like that. She was it was based on like her appearance versus just like someone who's just, you know, more. A more regular voice actor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I would get sometimes, you know, Mark and Bob would, or some of the other writers, they would write in these characters. And then from there, they knew who they kind of wanted, you know. So then I would get a good description. Like, you know, she's going to be more like this, or he's going to be more like this, or is based on that actor, or she's going to mm -hmm. be based on that actress. Yeah. That's neat. Um yeah, I always, I mean, the villains, I think, were uh, really fun. Draken and Chico were, were the best, um, mm -hmm. obviously. <laughs> Which, Lauren, who's your favorite Kim Possible villain? Shigo. <laughs> yeah. Shigo, I feel like I know Shigo. that sounds, I feel like I know that's like a def default, but she really is the best. It's because she's sassy and she's, you know, she's, I, I always love it when, when you have somebody who's supposed to be this, like, the partner in crime and they're clearly the, the, the smarter one of the two. But they're putting they're put in the backseat to just sass them while they're there. So it's like uh. so it's like when she goes, it's totally meant to be the foil to Kim. So uh, so that's why I think it was it was great to have her involved and to have Nicole Sullivan be her voice was just the icing on the cake. Having grown up with Mad TV and seeing her on there, and it was just like yeah, she was the perfect person to be Shigo. Yeah, I love like finding it's funny because I, I don't know what I hit on Instagram or something, but I just see so <laughs> many cosplays. All the, not only do I see so many people drawing these characters all the time, which is just so cool. Um, there's so much fan art of these characters, but also just the cosplays. And I in my feed, I see so many Shigos and so many Kims, and it's just like every day and even when I go to conventions you know hopefully soon again but you know every convention I go to I always see Kim Possible and Shigo mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, cosplays and I'm just like man that's amazing because you know you work on a show you do something you never know what it's going to be you never know what it's going to turn right. into I've designed on lots of shows and you don't, some fail, some come, some go, some don't even get past the pilot phase and you just never know what is it that's going to hit and what isn't and that's the gamble that the studios are always taking hence the reason why they make all these remakes you know because they're just like well it's a built-in brand you know shrek we we know we got the audience for that you know tom and jerry you know the seven dwarfs tasmanian devil yeah we bugs bunny we know we can sell that mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and I think that's what I think that's like the the really golden uh, the golden goose as far as Disney. I'm probably butchering that um, that that phrase, but anyway, is Disney is very good about having um, brand longevity and like if you think about it, you know, like Snow White came out what in, in 2930, mm -hmm. like yeah, something like, like that. 1930s. It was like, and it was, and yeah, to think to this day that Snow White still has longevity as a Disney princess and as a property, and so much so that the, each of the dwarves sometimes sell more more merchandise than 
She does actually. That no, it's not. Maybe they do, especially Grumpy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, amazing. Like... It's amazing. That, I mean, that's the beautiful thing that I like about animation is that you can what you can these shows they have this longevity for life. Where like movies, you know, it's, yeah, sure, some of them do, but the majority of them never do. Like you're not going to merchandise. 97% of movies that are made, right? You're going to mm-hmm. have those 3% of movies that ever get merchandise and usually they're DC or Marvel or Disney or something else and with animation, just you think about Snow White. Yeah, you go to Disneyland and you see all this Snow White merchandise still and where this animation has this life that seems to last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, if if it's if it's a hit, if it does well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, even if it doesn't do well, then people still remember it. I They'll think still, more yeah, than something sure. than like, like live action. Exactly, um, exactly. Like you could probably name more animated properties than all the 50 billion shows that are on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Where, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to remember all those, but you'll always remember the animated ones. Yeah. Right, right. right. Um, I'm just, yeah. And I think that's just kind of the appeal of animation in general is like you can, you can, um, you know, you're not, you're not gonna, you're, you're not sure, words are hard, you're not sure whether you're gonna like a character based on, um, their live action appearance, but like, if you see them animated, then you, then your eyes are like drawn to their eyes, or just the way they look, or the color scheme, and then you can, like, I think that's just why Disney works really well with children, because children don't really have to think whether they like a character, they can just be like, oh, I like, you know, I like um, the way they look. You know, I was very much like that with um, Ariel when I was little because, you know, I just liked her design and I liked the color palette, you know, and all that, like, that's so. Um, well, that's what, you know, that's they... what I do. That's, it's funny that you kind of mentioned that, you know, just following that. It's like when people ask me, they say, so when you're designing a character, what is your, what, what is one of your chief aims in that? And one of my chief aims in designing a character is I consciously, think about cosplay. Mm-hmm, I think about mm-hmm. if someone were to wear this costume, this character, how would they dress up as this character very easily to where someone doesn't have to reinvent the wheel, but all of a sudden they can go to a Halloween party or they could show up at Comic-Con and all of a sudden they're that character. And so I'll try, I'll always try to think of different design things that will make it, oh, I could see someone making shoes like this or making a t-shirt like this and adding that jacket or maybe making hair that ends up looking like this. And that would be a good Halloween costume. And so mm-hmm. I consciously think about that because I think it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, it's getting to the point where um, I'm not sure if it's officially licensed or not, but um, there's like Kim Possible, like straight up like adult costumes that you can buy on eBay for like 30 bucks. And, you know, so, um, yeah, again, I don't know if they're licensed or not. They look licensed from what I can tell. But... I think it is because there's a lot of Shigo um, outfits uh-huh. I've seen out there. They've kind of made them kind of almost like this weird tech looking thing. There's, there's some really good one. I mean, the best ones are the people who make them themselves. But mm-hmm. uh, there, I think there is a whole license for the Kim Possible stuff. I actually yeah, just yeah. went to Disneyland. Uh, well, no, it was probably about five months ago or something, four months ago. And they, they had a, um, which I was surprised, a new Kim Possible little pin. You know how they have the yeah, pins. Yeah, and yeah. Pins. I, 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 um, like... Someone got it for me because they saw it at Disneyland, and yeah. So um, for those who don't know, there was a little. Um, there was a new Kim Possible pin um, where it's basically like it's it's her mission outfit, and then you can pull it 
Um, it's like a see-through glass, and then you can pull it aside, and then it's her regular outfit. And this is like, you know, 2020, like, like new Kim Possible merch, but it's probably... It's probably the only Kim Possible merch that's new besides the, the promotional stuff they made for the live action movie, but it's it's still something, so I won't complain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I was surprised about was um, Kohl's, you know, the store came out with uh, Danny Phantom t-shirts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was crazy. I was just, and I ordered some of those. I'm like, what? All these years? <laughs> and what, what is going on here? You know, it was, so uh, that was cool. I had to go buy some Danny Phantom t-shirts. Yeah, Butch Butch did give me the heads up on that. He's like, you should probably go to Kohl's and you should probably go buy some shirts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, Lauren works with Butch um, sometimes at work, so she'll tell me inside stuff. And I'm like, Lauren, yeah. I hate you. <laughs> so, what are you know. doing with Butch? Uh, we're working on kind of NDA stuff, but mostly just building up a, a kid's brand right now, entertainment brand. So, and starting with kids' books. And so he's been kind of like uh, consulting on on that and helping us flesh out story beats and stuff like that for the kids books. And uh, he's been he's been awesome to work with. He's been it's super knowledgeable. So it's just like it's been really cool to even consider him like at this point, it's like we've been you know, working together for a handful of months now since like October. And it's and it's like, wow, I'm actually working with him. The guy who's like made my shows from my childhood and who's like I wow <laughs> so I can I can feel the jewel from here Lauren just to calm down a little bit <laughs> it was just like but it's like the, the the starstruckness has like died down but it's still you know every now and then you kind of think like wow how did I end up here <laughs> yeah yeah Butch was another great guy to work with for sure like um, from different people I mean again he's one, he's one of those guys where he's, he's like with Chris Bailey you know he has his unique personality and everything and you just start to understand people and you understand how they work or what their expectations are and um, yeah he was he was fun to work with he was great yeah, I was going to ask, like, uh, yeah, with kind of like segueing into Danny Phantom, because, um, uh, I mean, you basically kind of worked with his style a little bit, but you also made it your own. Uh, tell us a little about your design process for Danny Phantom. Yeah, a lot of it was where we would get the script and then from there, again, just start churning out just a bunch of ideas and see what works and then take it up there and show it to Butch and then see what you see what he kind of thought about it um which was really just part of the the fun process again every time we got a script and even from the get-go um was just churning out tons of drawings showing it to Butch and then Butch saying yeah I kind of like the direction otherwise he'd be like you know make that guy taller or it, it gives certain suggestions, you know, as to how he thought maybe the, the characters might look and um, and that, you know, that always just kind of varied. But it was just, again, very easy sort of process um, and just experimenting initially with Sam. I remember when I was designing Sam, what I what I really wanted was I wanted her ponytail to change in every episode. So when I initially designed her, she had like you know, her, her little black thing that's above her head and then it would be purple or then it would be green. And, you know, those are certain ideas that you do that don't, don't, don't make the cut or anything. And then again, even when I designed Sam and like did her costume, I was thinking, uh, simplicity, what would someone wear? How simple could they make this for a, uh, a, um, 
cosplay. You know, so that's why I just like drew that little purple thing. Just boom, done. The purple on black, good. You're done. You know, little, little, you know, in the skirt, just quick, simple things. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and then what? What would happen is just a lot of times because Butch's sensibility was with the fairly odd parents sort of style that George Goodchild and Bob Boyle, when they were mm -hmm. creating and design, you know, were doing, doing a lot of that stuff. There was a sensibility and that was Butch, but you know, that kind of became Butch's sensibility and it became that sort of the big eyes and that sort of face. And we knew with um, Danny Phantom that I was, ne I never wanted it to look like or be like uh, fairly odd parents. And so they, I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of the early development, some of the earliest stuff that uh, was going on, but there was a little bit more of a, there was more of a Kim Possible because I had just, I was still doing, working on Kim Possible at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working at, on, um, and then it went, went over to Nickelodeon. So there was a lot of sort of that um, organic, I guess, maybe sort of thing that I put in the drawings, but Butch would be like, kind of, eh, got to be more going into the fairly odd parents. So then it kind of became more like this older version of the fairly odd parents style, just uh, myself and the other designers. So initially there was, uh, it was me, I was hired first on that show. And then another artist by the name of Shannon Tyndall came on, just an mm -hmm. amazing artist. And we got to share office space, working together, splitting up, working on picking which designs we're going to design and work on. And then uh, Shannon left and then another great artist came on, uh, Ben Balistrieri. And so we were working together longer than we were in high school, you know, sitting in the same office just because there were so many designs that needed to be done. And then we would just work on it, show Butch, Butch would go yay or nay. And then from there, we'd do our version. Then it would go to the cleanup department and then they would do a cleanup line on it. And then it would go to the color department and they would do the final colors. And sometimes we would offer our color sensibility, you know, because I think that's important too in design. And then they would either decide if they wanted to stick with that or not. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, it also so much, much goes, goes into the process, the process of like, Fleshing out something, something that ends up becoming a landmark, landmark when you, you just don't know it yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't know. We we had no idea. We didn't know what was going to happen with uh, Danny Phantom. Again, you're working on it. Butch is excited about it. We're excited about it. But you never know what's going to hit. Like then Butch did Bunsen and the Beast, and you know, mm -hmm. and then that didn't. Like, well, why didn't that? That's the same guy that created Fairly Odd Barons, created Danny Phantom. Why didn't that one work? And it's just like some things work and some things don't. You just never know. You never know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Test audiences. Test audiences. All that, all that stuff. Yeah. Corporate, yeah. Corporate, corporate, corporate stuff. stuff. Um, yeah, but it's or, the people. Or, you could go through all that, but it's the end of the day, the people, right? The, the consumers, the, the, the young kids, the older kids. Are, am I going to keep watching this and watch it over and over again and make it the hit that it ends up becoming, you know? You don't know. You don't know. A test group will never tell you that. You'll never know in a test group. Right, right. That's that's fair to say because I think um, the the taste, uh, especially of kids, but just in the general pop culture faces um, or taste is totally is always evolving. So you can you can try to be ahead of the curve, but you don't really know what the curve could be like. You know, three years, five years down yeah, the line. No, so never, never. You know, speaking. I remember. I just thought this. I remember work when I was working on Kim Possible. They were telling me, 
I need to think about what kids are going to be wearing high school kids a year from now, because mm-hmm. by the time the show comes out, it's going to be a year later. And so what, what are kids going to be wearing? And it's like, I don't know. I was looking through all these. I was remember going to the Barnes and Noble and I was buying so many fashion magazines and I was looking at all these teen magazines and looking at hairstyles and looking at things and realizing, you know, you know, and plus Alan Bodner being a great art director, he was just his color sensibility and everything, but just knowing that, you know, jeans are always going to stay popular, kind of, you know, the crop top thing was kind of big, but I knew it was kind of like big in Israel and everything too. I was thinking of what Israelis I had been to Israel and thinking about what Israeli uh, teenagers or youth wears because they seem very hip and very cool. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking at that. So I was just looking at fashion um, all, all the time. Again, another role of the character designer is constantly be looking at fashion, constantly be looking when you're out and observing, look what people are wearing, uh, you know, go when you're at a restaurant, when you're at the convention, Wherever you are, you you always got to be drawing, even though you're not drawing. And I think that's uh, one of the key components to being um, a character designer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard. You, you kind of got to be the fortune teller a little bit. <laughs> um, Lauren, do we have any more questions that you think we haven't covered yet? Um, shoot, I'm trying to think. Uh. I guess maybe a final one. What would be, I guess you say, where are the best resources for inspiration? I We have to discover, discuss, like, you know, studying from life and, and from your surroundings, but, like, maybe some artists that have inspired you, uh, aside from Al Hirschfeld, that you also recommend in order to study character design, character design. and kind of like what shaped you. like what shaped you. Yeah, I mean, for me, some of there was uh, one one of my greatest inspirations. He just recently passed away. Actually, last week was a man by the name of Mort M O R T Drucker D R U C K E R, and he was a Mad Magazine artist and caricature mm-hmm. artist, and just one of the best caricature artists in the world. Um, I ended up having the fortune of making a documentary on him. I was able to go over and film him, and I, I have that on Vimeo now a documentary film on him and he he kind of taught me just to observe just observe life and I always saw it in his artwork I saw the expressions the mannerisms um, and it really drew me to the understanding of how important it is to constantly observe from life and it's not just life drawing but again you're sitting at that convention you're looking at people you go to the park you're at the airport you're at the restaurant you notice the chef you notice the waitress you notice the couple that just walked in and sat down and how they, their, their conversation and you watch TV and you look at the mannerisms and you look at commercials and you're constantly, you constantly, like I mean, you look at the news and you look at the mannerisms of people and how people stand and how people speak. And it's just really, and what Mort Drucker always said to me and I, and I look back now and go, he was absolutely right. And it was all about observation. And just looking at people and that's what you want to do as much as you can. If you want to be a storyboard artist, if you want to be an actor, if you want to be an actress, if you want to be a voice artist, just observe people because this is what's going to make you understand people and how to draw someone in that certain pose and and give that feeling because that's what people miss in a lot of their work and in their acting 
in their dance, in their music, in their whatever they're doing is feeling. How do you how do you teach feeling? Well, you don't teach feeling. I can teach you how to do certain things. I can teach you maybe how to see. I can teach you how to read music. I could teach you how to maybe act in front of people. But what really comes through at the end of the day is how your experience that you can bring in to your own personal observations. I observed that person be upset and what did it feel like and how can I put that back into my work because I feel that's what we will always respond to in as humans is feeling. We feel the cat, we feel the anger, we feel the sorrow, we feel the, you know, whatever it may be, we feel it. And mm -hmm. this is what's so mm -hmm. important for the artist is go beyond just seeing with your eyes and just see with your mind and allow your mind to do the seeing. It's not just an opti optical thing. It's like, wow, I, whoa, whoa, look how that person just, gee, did you just see that? Not to see that, but did you feel that? Did you, wow, man. And that's why we can look at a YouTube video. We can look at a movie. We can look at something that's going to make us cry. We can look at something that's going to make us angry. We can look at something that's going to give us emotions. And again, it's not based on what we're actually physically seeing as much as it is what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. So how mm -hmm. can you bring feeling into your artwork, into your acting, into your music? And I think if you can do that, that's where you're going to start to truly improve upon whatever skill set you want to do. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point to end. And I was just going to also I always recommend just people study silent films, too, because when you're trying to study, you know, I think when you're trying to study like how people emote via, again, nonverbal dialogue and studying how Charlie Chaplin can kind of emote and, you know, have expression without, you know, saying things in general then um, that's kind of the test of the true artist is, you know, can you can you get that across without saying a word? And, you know, obviously the the the, the newer version of that is Samurai Jack. And, you know, there's, there's very minimal dialogue and there's getting so much pass via just just, you know, visual language. So um, Pri Steven, Primal's a good one, too. I would just Primal, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I just want to I would advise artists as well just to watch movies or commercials or anything just on mute. And sit there with your sketch pad. It doesn't even have to be a silent move or anything else. And just see if there's something you notice about that person's mannerisms or that acting. Um, and try it. So just watching on mute is a great way to learn too. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, okay, Stephen, Stephen where, where can people, people find, find you if they want to um, find, find you, you or, or throw, throw money, money at you? At you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can find me. My, a lot of my stuff, my portfolio, my store, all that good stuff is on silvertoons.com. And then I also have a YouTube channel. If you just type in Stephen Silver with a PH, you'll find I do these art talks um, and that. And then I'm teaching a lot of courses on schoolism. Dot com and I just started a new course on there where I'm teaching about observation and how to, so you get to draw along with me. It's called character design workout. And every day you get to draw along with me as I'm showing you stuff and you get to do your own style, whatever you're going to do, but we draw for about eight to 20 minutes just to have a workout every day. Yeah. I think that's obviously, obviously important. Just keep on drawing every day. I say, as I haven't touched my tablet in like a month. <laughs> Meanwhile, I draw every day, so, but I need drawing breaks to draw for me. 
uh, that's so much work, Lauren. Um, <laughs> but yeah, again, if you're new, uh, we have episodes uh, every Wednesday, um, you know, 6 a.m. Um, Eastern Standard on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and then the YouTube versions usually go up at 4 p.m. Um, Eastern if we don't screw it up somehow. Um, again, <laughs> Thank you, Stephen, uh, for coming. Um, personally, you're a huge inspiration of my personal style. Um, every time I draw an OC, everyone's just like, it looks like Kim Possible. And I'm like, I know, I can't help it. So, <laughs> Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. This was a fun, uh, just open conversation. Yeah, thank you so much yeah, for joining yeah. us. And, and and likewise, you have been a huge inspiration to my art style and design flow as well because it's like every time I look at things I'm like okay what shapes are in there what, what can I look at somebody and have like how do I make them into some into this amalgam of shapes and lines yes, yes. <laughs> so um anyway thanks for listening everyone hopefully this was educational which is the important thing and uh we'll see you next week if you um Feel free to join us, and if you're new, again, we have a couple, We have a good chunk of episodes already released on the social, uh, like one of the places I described already. So feel free to um, archive and catch up. What else are you gonna do? It's coronavirus. So <laughs> uh, thanks again, and um, see you guys next time. Okay. Bye, guys. We can end. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Animation Communication on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. We are really hoping this show makes a difference in how people view animation and media, as well as giving and providing advice for people all over the world who like or want to join the animation or media industry. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and rate those five stars, as well as tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our main YouTube channel, I Love Kim Possible A Lot, and turn those notifications on. My name is Scribbler, and you have been listening to Animation Communication.